Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the Minorities in Publishing podcast. For new and returning listeners, you may know you can find the podcast on Tumblr at minoritiesinpublishing.tumblr.com or on Twitter at minoritiesinpub or wherever you listen to podcasts, including Google Play, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. I'm doing a bum rush of summer interviews with so many fabulous publishing professional people, and it has just been a pleasure for the past two months talking to folks nonstop. And today, welcome Caitlin San Miguel, an associate production editor at SNS, Simon & Schuster for Lay People, Children's Publishing. So welcome, Caitlin. Thanks, Jen. So glad to be here. Got my publishing Production peeps on the podcast. Caitlin, something we talked about briefly before I press record was the fact that inclusivity is is not happening, obviously, but is so detrimental to the fact that there are so many roles in publishing where we are not present as marginalized people, underrepresented people, historically exploited people, however you want to phrase it. Some of the things in production are so crucial to the content of a book, not just in terms of getting the book to be a physical product, but also working with it in some ways. And I think it differs from company to company. Sometimes the production editor is more hands-on, and in other places I've seen the production editor is much more hands-off and that they really just deal with printers. They might notice some issues, but they're not really looking at the content in a real way. They're looking kind of like at markup and like comparing things, but not reading it in the same way that other departments were. Again, that differs. So I'm very curious why you felt like production is a place for you. But also, I think that really leads into the trajectory question that always opens the podcast of how did you get into publishing and to production where it seems like you're making your mark here. Yeah, I guess I'll kind of start this backwards then and go with how I ended up in publishing in general. Technically forwards, but (laughs) (laughs) my question was backwards, but (laughs) I didn't do it the right way. (laughs) Spoken like a true former production editor. (laughs) I was in college and I did not know a lot about publishing jobs. I've always loved writing and books, you know, the very typical like background of why people get into publishing. But I was pre-med at the time, and I very quickly was not pre-med and decided that I was going to switch over and go into English and journalism, and I was going to do something reporting-related or publishing-related. But I hadn't been thinking specifically about book publishing. I was thinking more about newspapers and online magazines and things like that. And at one point, thinking about internships for the summer, I was like, I'm going to apply to anywhere that will take me and anything that sounds cool. And I was like, oh, people work in book publishing. Like this is a thing that I've kind of heard about. You know, I've seen, I've held a book before. I've seen that there are like copyright pages or acknowledgements where they're like, thanks to my editor and things like that. So I had looked up a few companies, looked at things that were around my area in New Jersey and just mass applied to things. And I was like, editorial makes sense. You know, that was the job in publishing that I knew. It was the only one that I knew really. And a few months had passed and I ended up getting, which I feel like it was just a fluke, I ended up getting an unpaid internship at an academic publisher within editorial. And while I was there, I was part of like a very, very small cohort of like three, four of us interns. And we had these small workshops like every other week to introduce us to other aspects of book publishing. It was in these workshops and through the internship that I learned that editors are not doing everything as 
I had for some reason just thought and that the things that I was really into, such as like the nitty gritty details of there's an error here, this page looks kind of funky, stuff like that, were more under the production editor's roles. And I was like, okay, cool, interesting. And I left that internship and I was like, academic internship, academic publishing is really nice. This might be something that I want to go in, but let me try the trade route because that also seems like something that could be up my alley. And I was lucky enough to get, you know, a traditional publishing internship with a big five publisher, not in their New York office, but in a Princeton office. So it was like, I was the only person, the only intern at that office. And I was working within what was essentially a proofreading department. We did proofreading, we reviewed eBooks, we entered corrections from each pass into Word documents, kind of like a jack of all trades a bit in the way that publishing makes its departments. And I worked there as an intern and then later as an assistant. And it was there that I realized like I had a really big passion for proofreading and copy editing and focusing on minute details. But I also learned like I could not just be sitting and proofreading all day long. I needed interaction with other people. I wanted to meet editors. I wanted to meet designers. I wanted to really know the people I was working with rather than just getting getting the first pass of a book and the manuscript and being like, okay, now I will review this. I will proofread it. And then I will send the project back. And then I get a new book the next day. I wanted to feel like I was more part of the process. And I decided... I had like worked with production editors most closely as an assistant in that editorial services department. So I was like, let me try out production editorial and managing ad. And I applied to a few different managing editorial, production editorial roles, and finally landed one at Simon & Schuster, where I'm now an associate production editor for SNS Kids. So it was kind of like a weird roundabout way where it started with me being like, yes, editorial, this is what I'm going to do. And then realizing, oh, there are other jobs in publishing that aren't just editorial and I can do these things too. So I've done now academic publishing, trade adult publishing, and now children's publishing. Interesting. And you mentioned that the academic spot was an unpaid internship. Yes, it was an unpaid internship. For college credit or something like that? For college credit, yes. It was a fall unpaid internship and I had to work a paid internship somewhere else at the same time and do my classes because I could not just be doing an unpaid thing. I also needed to save up, like make money and save up money for my tuition. So what? So you're working two jobs, two part-time jobs, and I'm guessing a full course load? Yes. Do you mind me asking what the other internship was? It was, was it also in- publishing related or no? No, it was an internship that I was working at my university. It was like mm-hmm. a student affairs kind of thing. So I was doing a lot of event planning. I was like writing some newsletters le- too also for the college, doing random, just doing a lot of random stuff under the name of student affairs. Wow. But publishing spoke to you. Yes. Publishing spoke to me. And then the next one was paid. <laughs> the next one was paid because I was like, this internship is going to be 30 hours a week. Um, mm. I cannot do 30 hours a week unpaid and also do like a part-time job. It just, it has to be a paid internship. Wow. I mean, it's not as though I didn't know unpaid internships existed, but I think it's very important to discuss the hardships of that and the fact that you still pursued publishing because that could have turned someone off completely. 
Definitely. I mean, people talk about it all the time, especially junior staffers, is the pay of publishing. And some internships still now in 2022 aren't paid. And then when they are paid, they're either, you know, like lower hours than they used to be or pay isn't great. And that's Mm. something that we have to talk about, especially when we're thinking about historically marginalized communities or people working in publishing. Right. I remember I did the publishing certificate program, which I've talked about many times on the podcast. And their thing was that they had a stipend. So if there was an internship and they weren't paying you in dollars, because <laughs> some were like, we'll give you a lunch stipend and MetroCard. This was legit what was happening. Yeah. They still be happening. Yeah. What was happening in the early aughts. <laughs> it was, this is what we'll give you. And one of my internships was doing that. And so the publishing certificate program, they had some reserves so that they're like, we can give you a weekly or biweekly stipend on top of that. But it really was like, we want these places to pay you, Mm -hmm. but we do have money in case you don't. And then I think also it becomes hard to negotiate. I know I didn't know how to negotiate. So I had asked, I said, oh, is this a paid internship? Mm -hmm. And they said no. And I didn't push or anything. So I just said, okay. (laughs) Went to the program and said, they're not paying. And they just kind of like, oh, kind of encouraged them to say that if they really want to invest in people of color, that they should be paying them. And I'm just like, they're not paying. <laughs> yeah, I totally get it, especially when you're first starting out in your career and you don't even know if you can break into the industry and mm-hmm. then you finally get to that late stage of the interview, you get the job offer, the internship offer, and they're like, hey, we're going to give you nothing. And you're kind of like, well, I got this far. People have been doing it. Like other people have been figuring out, I guess I'll have to figure it out myself. Mm-hmm. And you just don't feel like you're in a position really to negotiate. And mm-hmm. the power imbalance is just so huge. Like you've you just feel it in that moment. Right. You. Right. Because this is how it is. Yeah. Right. How do you argue against? I mean, you can. Mm-hmm. But again, junior in college, undergrad. <laughs> it was exactly how you said. I'm like, OK, I can figure it out. I mean, I appreciate that there was a program that had that because mm-hmm. I don't believe in unpaid anything. Oh, I mean, I get why volunteer roles exist because yeah. certain things, but when you're with a corporate entity or even an academic entity or what have you, I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there were there are bills to pay, even when you're a college student and people think like, oh, you know, right. you're in college, right. it's okay. You don't need real no. money or anything. And you're like, yeah, a lot of people do. Right. Like, no, I would like some dollars with some zeros after it. <laughs> so that would be nice please and thank you i remember my first paid paid from the internship was scholastic and i think at the time they paid 10 maybe 11 and we were like whoa <laughs> the time it was like holy crap maybe 12 it was definitely 10 or slightly yeah. above 10 either way we were all like holy crap we have hit the jackpot <laughs> I totally feel you. My internship before it became an assistantship, and there was very little difference between the internship and the assistantship, except for like, oh, now you're working a 35 hour work week and you have benefits. Oh, really? That's, yeah. So you were an employee then? Yes. It was both good and bad because on one hand, I was like, oh, I really feel like I know this specific department. I know this job well as an intern. And then later being like, wait a minute, I was getting paid half of what assistants get paid. There's, a, there's something happening here. There's 
something interesting. <laughs> yeah. Whoa. Hold on. Yeah. So you're doing a 35 hour work week and you have benefits. And is it just that you're not technically a 40 hour salaried employee? Is it that's the loophole? Oh. That was for, yeah, that was for the assistantship was the 35 hour work week. And but you got benefits. Yes, as an assistant. But then as an intern, it was like, oh, you work 20 hours a week. You don't have benefits and you get like half of the pay of an assistant, basically. Oh, so for yeah. the assistantship, you did get like a, an assistant salary. Yes, yes. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Because I was about to say, whoa. But <laughs> To your point, the internship math is not really great either. No. It's no, no. really a way to just, it's a loophole. And especially back when they used to require people to be on sites for internships. I'm not mm-hmm. sure. I, I know there are some remote internships now with some of the publishers. Yeah, um, the remote. I feel like that's been very flexible still. So while yeah. potentially new hires need to be in the area or thereabouts, depending, the interns, they've still been kind of lenient about them not having been here. Which is great because back when I was an intern, you were required to be in the office five days a week, four days a week, however many hours you were working. And I wasn't in a New York office and I was in a Princeton office that was, I could commute from my parents' house in New Jersey. But if I had to go into New York City and I wasn't living where I was living, you can't live in New York for three months on that intern salary. And I would just be like, how do people do this? Pre-pandemic, you were commuting? Yes. Pre-pandemic, I was commuting into my office in Princeton. At some point during the pandemic, you went to SNS? Yes. Got it. And it's been remote since? It's been completely remote. I've been into the office twice now. We'll probably go again sometime this summer, but not going in with any regularity at this point. And how has that been for you? I started one job two months before the pandemic began. So I was still new, but I at least got on-site training. Mm-hmm. And then I started my current job last February. So about almost a year into the pandemic, or I should say a year into quarantine. Mm-hmm. And it is awkward. <laughs> um, the first few weeks were so awkward. I had, you know, made a department change. So this was a position that I was new to in a company I was new to, and we were completely remote. So it was very difficult at first, just being like, I don't know what any of my coworkers look like. I now have to tell all of you, please get me these books, this manuscript at this time, having gone from a position where I wasn't really working with a lot of other departments, and I wasn't telling people deadlines or anything to suddenly having all of this responsibility. And it was extremely awkward. But then after the first few weeks, I actually started getting into a better rhythm because I felt more comfortable reaching out to people through Teams, through email, and just saying like, you know, having these kind of informal conversations with them on the side. But it did take a while to kind of build those remote relationships. But where I am now, I feel like I'm actually closer to a lot of my coworkers than I have been in some of my other jobs where I've been in person, which is interesting. Yeah, they'll be like, who's this pushy Caitlin person? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Who does she think she is? (laughs) New person who just started two weeks ago, junior staffer suddenly telling me that I needed to get this manuscript to them two weeks ago, or, you know, where is this jacket? Like, it's... Editorial knows they're late. It's not like they don't. <laughs> yeah. They know. They just don't like being shouted out for it. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, come on. 
<laughs> I totally understand as someone who was getting, well, not shouted out at, but, you know, would have to work with production editors who'd be like, hey, where's this thing? And I'd be like, I'll get it to you. I'll get it to you. <laughs> My thing is don't lie. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like some people, I've been in these meetings at my current job where it is basically, depending on the person, people have answers, people don't have answers, people don't have answers and don't want you to know they don't have answers because they don't want to seem like they're not good at their job. Mm -hmm. But sometimes it's just like, let's just be honest. Yes. Uh, The author ghosted me. I don't know what's going on. You know, we've all been in positions where we don't know what's going on, mm-hmm. where we don't have something ready. But we as production editors, we need to know where everything is at all times, you know. So right. if you aren't being upfront and honest with us about what's happening with something, we can't build those schedules for you. We don't know how to help you with that. Right. We're not looking for like a gotcha moment with any of the people we work with. We want this book to get out in its mm-hmm. best condition, just as everyone else does. You can tell us if it's not in that condition yet we will understand (laughs) hear that editors (laughs) everyone wants you to succeed but it is just very interesting because when i was in production at a university press we were doing managing ed and production Mm -hmm. so we were hiring the copy editors i mean depending on where you were hiring the copy editor proofreaders i was typesetting the books i was reviewing the files i was inputting the corrections i was talking to the art director about the cover Mm-hmm. checking that against stuff and then we would check each other's stuff on our very small team and so I thought when I got to a big house like a big five and I was just doing schedules I'm like oh okay that should be like way more low-key and it was not <laughs> <laughs> it was not <laughs> Yeah, I actually, SNS Kids, our managing editorial department, which I'm part of, sounds more like what you were doing with your university press. When I first got hired for my role, the hiring manager was like, I just want you to know, like, in some other companies, this position, you know, the responsibilities that fall under this position could be three whole different departments. Yeah. And on one hand, it's like, there's so much to remember on your day-to-day basis and so many different tasks, which can make your head spin. But on the other hand, there's never really a dull day. It's not like, oh, I'm only keying corrections and for my entire week and the next Mm -hmm. week it's just keying corrections again or making a schedule. It's like for 20 minutes in this day, I am keying in corrections and then suddenly a book will come in and they'll be like, we need you to build a crash schedule. And I'm like, okay, I'm sliding over to this thing now. So it's Mm -hmm. exciting, but it's also like wow, there is a lot of things to remember. Yeah, and depending on the titles, it's ridiculous. Yeah. It's ridiculous. And if you are dealing with the printers and all that stuff, you're negotiating with them and getting that. And and so it's all just very interesting because I deal with, now in the adult group at HarperCollins, I deal with the executive managing editor who deals with schedules, but also then there's a production person who handles the actual book. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think the executive managing editor is always telling us what dates we're missing, but also we're dealing with the individuals about the book. So technically they know too. And then we're dealing with like the other production people who are only dealing with the warehouse and binding and printing. Mm -hmm. So I'm always really confused. (laughs) Because I'll forget the printer people. You know what I mean? I'll be like, oh, I'm talking to this person because you've been doing with the book and you're the one who was telling me It needs to get to the printer this day. And they're like, oh, we have to bring in so-and-so who knows what the status is of the book itself. And I'm like, where did they come from? (laughs) I 
I've been dealing with them at all. I really feel like with publishing, you can work not even just in one company, but like in one division and be like, yeah, I know how publishing works. This is definitely how it works. And then, you know, you go from children's to adult within the same company and you're like, I do not know anything about how anything works, apparently. And then switching houses is its own bear. But yeah, I feel like every day I'm I'm learning about some new department or some new person who is handling a certain aspect of the book that I just did not know about. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. There's a person who handles all of the paper. Yeah, there is more than likely. Sure. (laughs) More likely. Cause then there you have the, like the interior design team and the cover design team. I mean, that's how it is here at Harper, but it also was a big thing at Random House Kids when I was there as well. Is you had people who only did YA, people who only did picture books, mm-hmm. you know, people who did middle grade and YA, and you're just like, wow, that's a lot. But they're like, no, that's the interior designer. The cover designer is Rachel, but the interior designer is Jennifer. And I'm just like, mm-hmm. okay. So for the lay people, let's talk about the supply chain if you don't mind sure so i mean i'll just be kind of quick the supply chain is essentially books getting printed bound shipped to the warehouse there have been issues there are less printers i mean again i've been in this business for 20 something years there are way less printers than when i started and there are way less american printers than when i started that's for sure. And that has been a big issue on top of the fact that less trees, less paper, more demand. Does that kind of like sum it up? Yes, that does sum it up. <laughs> and also just, you know, the pandemic, people mm-hmm. getting sick who work at the printers, people who need to take time off and mm-hmm. there not being enough people to replace them and having to be mindful that, you know, you finish up a book and then it goes to the printer, but it's not just like the printer is this random entity. There are real people working lives there who anything could happen that would make things not run the way that they're supposed to be or the way the schedule you imagined it to be. Right. And it it affects everything because it's rough because I feel like people think the supply chain thing started with the pandemic, but it did not. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you were affected as much and you're coming in from a slightly different role and whatnot. And it's been like, three-ish years in these major publishers and whatnot. So I don't know if you dealt with it as much in previous roles or over your time at your previous job. I know you're dealing with it now. (laughs) But we definitely had these concerns five, six years ago. And then especially when, sadly, once-his-face entered office, the tariff thing was a big thing. Mm -hmm. And we were seeing more issues then as well. It's been a mess. (laughs) It just really hit the fan when the pandemic happens. So that was... You said it. That was great. Because everyone was like, well, why? This essay. And then people were like, blame Obama's book. And I was at PRH at the time, so I was like, stop blaming the black man. (laughs) (laughs) There's so many people that you can blame and like situations you can blame. Stop using him as your scapegoat for this. So in terms of the books you work on, because you're now in the children's realm, do you feel like that's a good fit for you? I don't know if that's a fair question, considering you said you've gotten these different roles, but in terms of the content and the range of content, and also, I don't know if that's led to a bit more visibility of representation, if not in the books themselves than in your department. I don't know. Yeah, definitely. Actually, I love working in children's right now, having gone in adult publishing and academic publishing. It's 
a completely different beast. But I was working on adult imprints and academic publishing. You would get books about anything. And there were times where I would be working on nonfiction books that didn't align with what I felt politically. And I'm a very like, I'm a very opinionated person. And it would just be frustrating to be like, oh, we are here. Like I'm keying corrections in for someone who I would consider like a, like a racist human being, like a very horrific human being. And I have to deal with the fact that like, I did not sign this book. I did not, had no hand in buying it, but I still have to key these corrections into it or I'll lose my job and thinking like kind of spiraling in that sense and being like, what am I doing here? But working in children's publishing, I feel like a lot of the stories that I've encountered, many of them focus on, you know, how do we raise children and young adults to be good people? Or, you know, how do we make children and young adults feel seen, which was, I don't know, it's just very different from adult publishing in that way, where the messaging felt different. And also the people that I worked with felt different, like a lot of them are more open about their political leanings and things like that, or are very gung-ho about representation and stuff, where sometimes in other, whether it's like adult or academic, that can be kind of like a tricky space to navigate, but less so in children's. And I'm also liking that I don't read picture books for fun, really. I'm not, I'll read adult fiction for fun. I'll read young adult fiction for fun, but I'm not really going into my library and picking up a ton of picture books to read for myself. So like I hadn't really realized how the marketplace has changed for picture books and for middle grade novels and things like that until I got into children's publishing and I realized we are much more diverse and inclusive now than we were before. It's still not great, obviously, but I can actually now pick up a picture book and be like, wow, here's a Filipino American main character, which is something that I couldn't have even dreamed of when I was six or seven years old. It's interesting you say that because sometimes I will see children's book authors kind of crap on authors who write primarily for adult audiences. And that's usually because the reverse is happening already. So, you know, people look down on children's lit. I don't know why. So much of it is good mm-hmm. and so much is inspired generations and da, 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 da. it's funny because there's this you know the meme of spider-man pointing at spider-man <laughs> you're more racist you're a little more racist you're less inclusive you're less inclusive and all that stuff and i'm always like we're all screwed <laughs> like, like, like y'all it is all messy <laughs> So it's it's just always interesting when and I do talk to people because I do think in areas of children's lit, especially when I was at Random House Kids, there was a hankering to do more. Mm-hmm. But the staff certainly did not reflect it. Yeah. At all. <laughs> Absolutely. The books did, but the staff, I was like, there's some no, not not balanced not balanced. And this isn't to say that, you know, children's publishing isn't rewarding white mediocrity because it is. There are a lot of, you know, mediocre books that come out that I'm like, it's because you're white. You're allowed to be here. They expect you to be here. You can rewrite the same story over and over again. But I just felt like the vibes were different (laughs) in children's than went from the different adult sides that I've been on. Vibes are definitely different. (laughs) (laughs) The vibes are definitely different. I also feel like children's folks are less kind of formal. I feel like I've met quirkier people (laughs) on the children's side. I feel like I would always worry 
sometimes about my level of professionalism. If I was conducting some kind of faux pas that I hadn't realized I was doing, but that everyone else around me knew because they'd known about working in white collar, white dominated spaces. And I don't like my family. My mom is a nurse and my dad is a baggage handler for an airline company. So working in an office environment is not something that I really thought of as a child and didn't realize the complexities of until I was in college. And I was like, oh, you don't have uniforms that you have to wear. This is different. And just having kind of having to navigate that space. But being in children's, I feel like the people are tend to be a little quirkier. I don't have to overthink so much about ending my emails with like best Caitlin if people are going to be like this is so rude of her or starting my emails with like hey hey what's up so that's something that I've appreciated about children's a lot of exclamation points too so many exclamation points and emojis and just like our team's chats are all gifts. Yeah, that's my energy. Even yeah. before I was in children, like this was my energy when I was at a university press, constantly sending gifs. And I still do now. As it which, should be. Right. And my colleagues appreciate it. Let me tell you that. So if folks are like, oh, there's a line, no ma'am, no sir, if you don't identify in either of those realms. You can use a GIF anytime. Just make sure it's the appropriate GIF for the moment. Yes. People like the GIFs. Like, we need to just make this company wide. Because once I figured out how to put a GIF in Outlook, it was on. (laughs) Okay, you don't attach it. You got to (laughs) insert. That's the power. (laughs) People are like, oh, LOL, Jen. And I'm like, you're damn right. (laughs) This job is too stressful for us not to use appropriately timed GIFs. This job is stressful enough as it is. Let's not not all have sticks up our asses. Let's release this. (laughs) All right, GIF it up. GIF it up. I would send it to the CEO if he talked to the plebs. <laughs> He'll be like, I can't believe you sent him a GIF. I'm like, whatever. He knows what they are. Who doesn't like a cute animated cat? <laughs> exactly. Like, I don't want to work with people who don't like cute animated cats. That's where I draw the line, among other things. <laughs> so, Caitlin, so you mentioned being that there was more out there outside of editorial. And I'm not trying to recruit more people, but I'm not not trying to recruit people outside of the editorial realm. Are there aspects of your job that you think also speak to a love of books that maybe people just aren't considering and slash or that there are aspects of the job that you just think are applicable to certain skills that might speak to people that I think they're not thinking about? Yeah, well, most people who go into publishing, I feel like it would be wrong if you went into publishing and you were like, I hate books, you might want to reconsider joining this industry. But I feel like there are people out there who read books who aren't going into reading it and thinking of like developmental edits of like, oh, I would do this whole section of the book differently, or this section of the book differently, or whatever. There are people who are reading who are just they enjoy the story, they're liking how it's going so far. But then they'll be like, wait a minute, there's a consistency issue here. Like you said that you were on this side of the room two paragraphs ago, but somehow you're like not in the room anymore. What happened there? Or you pick up on these little nitpicky things of saying like, oh, weird. Is there a letter missing in here? Oh, you misspelled this character's name here. And those things I would say, you might want to consider production editorial if 
there are tiny things in books or things that other people might think of as tiny that you're suddenly you can't stop fixating on. You might like managing editorial slash production editorial or just being, you know, very organized people or wanting more of I wouldn't say wanting more of a work life balance, because I feel like if you're in publishing, a lot of people just do not know how to limit their work to the hours that we're expected to be working. But if you don't want to worry so much about how are we going to sell this book? How are we going to make sure that this book turns a profit and things like that? If it's mostly just like, I want to work with books. I don't want the huge pressure of making sure that this book is going to become like a bestseller in some way, but you still want to have a hand in shaping it and having your fingerprints over the book, as I like to call it, then you might be interested in production editorial or managing editorial. I don't know how coherent of a response that was, but... (laughs) No, it makes sense because I think that's the thing I really feel like people don't think about. And again, I was talking to someone who's doing an internship at my current company, but in another division, woman of color, and again said, I'm interested in marketing, but I'm thinking editorial. And I was just like, let me tell you what my days are like. And not with regret or anger, just like I feel like in other areas, you're able to focus on what you do and do it well, right? Mm -hmm. And it's not that you shouldn't continue to learn or figure out new ways to be more efficient or be more inclusive or just understand how the not just the industry but how the countries are changing like what discussions are like I think those are like things that are always part of our job of just like the ever-evolving nature of us being good professionals and people but again as a production editor I focused on making sure the book got done and then once it was done and at the printer and hopefully good quality I moved on to the next thing Mm-hmm. with no need to worry about anything else because we had a reprint coordinator. <laughs> you know what I mean? She would handle the reprint stuff. And then if anything, it's like, yeah, I can help you with the reprints or anything like that. But my job is done. Mm-hmm. Unless something random comes up, like I made a mistake or the printer screwed up or da, da, da. like my job is done with this book. Let's move on to the next. Yeah. So you're in it, your job is never done with these books, really. Mm-hmm. Maybe 10 years out, but you're still going to hear from these authors. I, I heard from an author, not even an author I knew, someone who had books published in the late 90s, early aughts. Well, now that so-and-so has been accused of this, I don't want this person mentioned in my books anymore. Okay. I have to take care of that as the editor and then let production know. This is what we have to do. But the bulk of that is mine. Oh, someone wants to renegotiate a contract. Someone wants to buy the rights back. Someone da 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 And I'm like, I have no idea who you are. It's like an editor has to have the octopus tentacles. Mm -hmm. And I feel like other divisions can live with two hands. Yeah. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Like I know a book very well from when the manuscript comes in. Mm-hmm. all the way until it gets printed. But once it's printed, that's it. I I mean, I worry so mm-hmm. much about sales because I really like the book or because, you know, the health of my company depends on the sales of the book. But I don't have to worry about anything beyond that. It's very much you have it for this finite piece of time. It's a good chunk of time and you get to really know the book well. But once it's over, it's over for me. I don't have to go back years later and be like, okay, what happened with this book? 
what are we going to do with it? We have someone in reprints who will handle reprints on that side. I don't have to worry about contracts, drafting up contracts or revising contracts because that's not me. And I also will say that if you are a person who I feel like editorial, you have to have a level of extroversion and sociability that I have to some degree but not always. And I cannot always be on with everyone. If I am having a bad day and I do not want to really speak to people, being in a production editorial allows me to kind of, I mean, I'm still in a ton of meetings. I'm still emailing everyone who's ever existed, it feels like, but I'm not constantly on call in the way that some editors and agents are, you know, with their writers, with their team. And that's something that I appreciate that I can be kind of like, kind of be quiet and introverted when I want to be. And then when I have to go into these meetings, I can just kind of like, I can push it all out and be like, I'm going to have a lot of energy for this three hour long meeting. And then I can kind of fall into my book and just key corrections or review jackets quietly until my next meeting the next day or something. It's not like I'm running from meeting to meeting to meeting to meeting constantly, which I appreciate. Yeah. That's definitely a big difference, I feel. And that's why people will always question why I was in production. <laughs> people will be like, you're so extroverted. <laughs> you're an editor, you're a publicist. And I said, no, I'm in production. They're like, really? <laughs> like these archetypes to an extent, I feel. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you agree. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I feel like I also think of a very specific archetype for production ed, man ed. I don't know if I fully fit the bill, but I fit enough that I'm like, this is the one for me. Like, this is the department that I want to be in. So it feels like you found your fit. Yeah, we'll see. I feel like I'm also a kind of person who likes to jump around and see what things are, which is another reason why I like my managing editorial role now, because I'm not just doing one thing all the time. But I also like that with the managing editorial role, I have time in my day to do freelance copy editing and proofreading which is a bit different from what I do in my day-to-day as an associate production editor. I can write on the side. I can do all these kind of different things without feeling like, okay, I have to submit 10 hours of each day just to doing this one thing. So Mm -hmm. if you can even do that. Yeah, if you can even do it. Because I know I take editing days, I block off. And even on a day where it's like, okay, from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m., I am not on Outlook. Who the hell knows what'll come up in the midst of my editing? <laughs> or it's like uh, someone's calling me from another coast, and, da, 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 and just to let you know when this came up, and, da, and you're like, "Well, alright, I got three hours of editing in, which is something." But always, everyone was like, "Oh, how was your editing day?" It's like I, I got some editing. I think y'all think I'm out here editing for seven hours, mm-hmm. and I'm not. <laughs> I wish I could. I'm not. So can I ask you a, a question quickly? Oh, of course. You know, you're in production and can you speak to anything in terms of like recognizing how to be cognizant of the issues that come up with representation? Like, I don't know if there's trainings or if there are, I spoke to someone at PRH who said that they handle kind of the sensitivity reader database for their imprint and they 
chose to make that part of their position of we're going to be inclusive, we're going to do this, but we're also going to like make sure we have rosters of people on a freelance basis rather than continually like when a book comes up, oh my God, we need to, do you know anybody? Do you know anybody? Anything like that. So I didn't know if SNS Children's or you'd heard about anything like that or can speak to that because I've heard different things at different companies. And last year, I think it was, I had someone from Random House Kids who is an associate director of cover design speak to trainings that she was doing. How do we talk about, how do we critique covers so that we're not being racist? Mm -hmm. How do we be mindful of the language we're using? So is that something that you've seen developed or that you'd like to see developed? It's definitely something that I'd like to see developed. We have like a roster of sensitivity readers on our database that gets updated, but my department does not handle the sensitivity reads. We are handling the copy editors, the proofreaders, and the indexers. I believe it's editorial who who focuses on the sensitivity readers. I get notified when something needs a sensitivity read so that I can put it in our system that there's going to be one, but I don't handle it myself. And as for my department training, I don't remember really seeing anything besides, you know, the company wide, like when every company sends out like, okay, we're going to do unconscious bias training, we're going to do these trainings that everyone is required to do. We'll do those, but we haven't done anything specifically for our department, which I think we should. I personally like to use the conscious language style guide, I believe it's called online to cross check anything that I think like this could be this could be potentially offensive let me check to make sure that this isn't anything and I'll do that but there isn't really like these guidelines that are laid out for us as production editors as managing editors that we have to follow which is really sad but it's kind of like you kind of have to hope in a lot of cases that your production editor, that your managing editor is well-versed in enough things that they can, or knowledgeable of enough things that they will be able to flag something and be like, hey, this could potentially be a problem. So that has also come up. But we have been starting, this is like slightly new, is that we've been starting to get better about detailing in our freelancer database, like how our freelancers have been in terms of querying language that could be potentially offensive, how they've spoken to authors, like how they've, you know, marked things up in their manuscripts and in their passes, which is good because you kind of know like, hey, maybe don't use this person. We're taking this person out of the list because they have marked things in a really not great way. So don't use them. But there definitely needs to be more that's being done that is not being done. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. Just curious, because I see, you know, y'all aren't alone. There's not a lot being done to take care of the content. The acquisitions is happening. But where are we taking care of these authors after the book's been acquired? Especially yeah. if either the editor is doing heavy lifting as someone who's representative of the material, or when they're not, and they're just trusting the author to get it all, quote unquote, right. Where are the checks and balances internally? And not just randomly being like, hey, Kaylin. <laughs> yeah, which how Someone told you this is your ethnicity. Can you read this? Yeah, that's also definitely happened where they've been like, hey, you're Asian American. Hey, you're Filipino American in 
places that I've worked or, hey, you know, you're a queer person of color. Do you want to read this and let me know or look at this cover or, you know, look at this manuscript or look at the wording of what I'm doing for this promotional campaign and see if like there's something funky going on there. And like, it's hard to say no, because you don't want to, you want to see representation done right. You want to see things done right. But at the same time, you're like, this is not part of my job. And you should be getting some kind of training in order to recognize when these things happen. And you know, in compensation, can we say compensation? Too? Yes, we can. Because they do love to do that. <laughs> Let's keep that real. And, you know, I'm thankful that in a lot of roles I've been in, people have been interested because when I was in college, I minored in comparative and critical race and ethnic studies. And it's always been very important to me to see representation, to be reading about representation, to be like getting engaged in discourse about these things. It kind of gets to you after a point when people are like, we're going to keep coming to you specifically for any questions we have regarding race. Like I'm not some kind of guru who can answer all of your questions about everything. I'm not someone who knows everything. We all need to, you know, do our parts to actually learn how to do these things and make sure that we're doing things right. Exactly. The sigh. Yeah. And also yeah. just like we we need to have more. I hate saying it because they're always like it feels like such like a it feels almost like the trend that publishers are getting into where they're like, we need to be more diverse, but they aren't actually making things more diverse. But we have to make active efforts into making the, the houses more diverse, making the writers more diverse so that we can we can all work together and catch these things. We know how to do representation right. We know how to do things right. You can have, you know, you can have an Asian author who's working with a white editor and an almost all white team. Things are going to go wrong in that way. And you can't just have the author being responsible for checking everything, for making sure that it's quote unquote, all right. Yeah, it always lands on one person. It understandably is the author's responsibility. And yet the publisher is there to help protect the author and produce the best work possible. Yes. I will say that we've been getting, we've been like beefing up our instructions when editors send over instructions for copy editors and production editors when they hand over their manuscripts and say like, okay, these are things you need to look out for, whether you need light copy editing, whether you need heavy copy editing, things like that. We started adding sections about like, let us know if there's anything in this book that you want us to be particularly mindful of, whether it's like, if the author is using a language that is their native language, do you want us to find a copy editor who also knows that language? If we can't find a copy editor who knows that language, how do you want them to address any foreign languages that appear there? Do you want them to look for consistency? Do you want them to like try to cobble together what they can through Google Translate? Do you want them to just not touch it at all? And I feel like it's not a lot, but it's something. Yeah, I talked to Carla a little bit about that and how I got pushback at my company from my production team. That was fun. Like, we don't know anybody if you don't have any recommendations. And I was like, oh, no, we're not doing this yeah. at all. This is not happening. It's good when people recognize it, but I feel like that goes back to kind of what I was saying earlier is when you're managing so many things, it's understandable how things slip through the cracks. But the purposeful nature of wanting to be inclusive involves 18 million steps. Mm hmm. And I feel like we don't really sit down and talk about what those steps are. Yeah. And think hiring a Caitlin does it, but hiring a Caitlin does not, if Caitlin is not supported mm -hmm. and does not have the resources to do her job well. 
And then, you know, that leads to burnout, that leads to people from historically marginalized communities not wanting to join publishing, just so many things. And resentment, too. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Which I think ties to the burnout. Well, I'm super glad you're in production, and I hope you have a long tenure there and keep doing the good work and helping us get there. Thanks. You too. Not about the production part because you're not in production anymore, but just this is an important podcast to have. This is an important community to have. And I really appreciate all of the work that you've been doing, especially because compensation matters. That it does. (laughs) Which is why I don't join diversity committees at work. (laughs) Because I'm like, nope. (laughs) Get me for the work work. You do not get me for the inclusivity PR move. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you don't do that for me. <laughs> or Caitlin. <laughs> you, you will compensate Caitlin for her time. Yes, you compensate Jen for her time. Like Maxine Waters. <laughs> <laughs> Reclaiming it, but also compensate us for it. Yes. <laughs> well, Caitlin, this has been an absolute pleasure to be able to talk to you and fellow production peeps. I know I'm technically not one, but I always still consider myself one. And so are you on the interwebs? Would you like to share your information? You do not have to. Yeah, I am on the interwebs. You can find me on Twitter at Kate May, K-A-I-T-M-A-E. I also have a website, CaitlinSanMiguel.com. That's if you want to hire me for freelance stuff... Do it. <laughs> Can I ask you real quick, do you mainly do children's? I mainly do children's, but I also have experience with adults, so I'm chill doing adults. And you can also find me, I have a bookstagram that I haven't been updating recently, but I'm hoping to get back into updating at Decolonized Bookcase on Instagram. So if you are interested in book reviews, I sometimes do those when I have a brain cell. (laughs) Get out. That is the best handle. Decolonize the bookcase. Yeah, Decolonized Bookcase. Oh, Decolonized Bookcase. Yes. Still awesome. Love it. So your website, CaitlinSanMiguel.com, you're on Twitter, and then Instagram and all these good things. But definitely hire Caitlin, y'all. Yeah, or reach out to me if you have any questions, especially if you're a junior staffer of color who just wants someone to talk to. I am here. (laughs) Or if you're looking to get into publishing, it's hard out here, and I feel you. (laughs) Yeah. And just to spell your name real quick, it's K-A-I-T-L-Y-N-S-A-N-M-I-G-U-E-L. Yep. Thank you again. This has been best way to spend a hump day. Really appreciate you and everything you do. And I definitely will be in touch with you. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. This has been awesome. And thanks, everybody, for listening. And especially since you know there is such a wide berth of all the people I've been interviewing this summer of opportunities in publishing. So please take advantage. And again, if you're listening to the podcast, then you may already know you can find it on Tumblr at minoritiesinpublishing.tumblr.com, where you can also sign up for the newsletter there or on Twitter at minoritiesinpub at the pin tweet. And again, feel free to download, rate, all that good stuff via wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again, Caitlin.